What's up, everybody? This is Ken Making. You're listening to Making a Difference. I just want to let you know what you're about to hear is inspired by you, the listener. Uh, we're doing a series where we are, where I am, taking questions uh, from you, the listener. You know, issues relating to uh, the African-American community, uh, issues relating to politics, anything you really want to talk about. Uh, it's called Request Line. And I'm excited to share it with you right now on Making a Difference. Um, to, be a Negro, to be a Negro in this country and to be... Um relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost almost all of the time you wonder why i spit the truth but not to make no dope to make a difference Do you need insurance for your car, home, life, or business? Then trust Jay Harvey, your Allstate insurance agent in Evans, Georgia. He opened his agency in 2017 because he loves helping and working with people. As a husband and father, he understands the importance of helping families prepare for the unexpected. You can get a personalized insurance quote today by calling 706-434-8106. Jay's office is located at 3118-8. William Few Parkway in Evans, Georgia. Remember, you're in good hands with Jay Harvey, your neighborhood Allstate insurance agent. I want to introduce Request Line. I have a feeling I'm going to really enjoy the series. It's really going to allow me to take specific questions from you all and to dive in those uh, questions with great detail. The first question is actually sports related. Uh, it's a question that was brought to me by James White. James had mentioned me on a report or, in, or yeah, on a report uh, from HBCUGameDay.com. Uh, the report said that no HBCU players were chosen in the 2021 NFL draft. Uh, James said, Ken, uh, What's your thoughts on this? What's the solution, if any? And will you be doing any articles or podcasts on the topic? Uh, The short answer I gave him was that there are a lot of variables in terms of COVID and the lack of opportunities for players to showcase showcase themselves on a big stage. With that said, I'm largely indifferent because of the NFL's treatment of potential past and present players, as well as my concerns with HBCUs being more finance and campus related. I want to be very clear about something just in terms of just myself as an individual And as someone who's in media, who's a journalist, who's been a journalist for a very long time, when I came into journalism, I actually came in as a sports writer. I was a freelance sports writer and everything I did related to journalism was about sports, covered youth sports, covered, you know, had the opportunities to cover college sports and in some cases, you know, cover professional sports, cover, you know, uh, that golf tournament in Augusta, you know, different things like that. As I've been in journalism, not only has my have my interests shifted and it's it may be more of a case of a versatility but i can just tell you in terms of just my personal passion uh, my preference now is to talk about politics is to talk about news is to talk about community concerns now keep in mind i still have an interest in sports i started a sports forum or helped to start a sports forum almost a decade ago actually nine years ago this month Uh, sports speak i'll have to uh, remember to put it in the show notes at any rate so there's been a shift over the last decade uh, about my concerns from sports to more of just a political, you know, kind of a conscientious um, 
a conscientiousness uh, in terms of, you know, when I talk about really any issue and it's no different than, uh, in sports uh, In sports. And just to be like I said, I used to be a person who, you know, I really was into watching games, was really into, you know, keeping up with statistics and different things like that. I've really shied away from that. I, I haven't wa- I haven't watched an NFL game specifically uh, since the Super Bowl between the Rams and the Patriots, which was a few years ago. And as I've explained in previous podcasts, I did that, you know, on behalf of Colin Kaepernick and just some of the issues that I had with the treatment of players um, and just some of the general vibes that you get from ownership and not just vibes, but understanding, you know, where a lot of those owners, you know, will donate and will, you know, put their money behind, you know, certain uh, political initiatives. A lot of those initiatives, uh, to be clear, go against the interests and the concerns of the players. And so you have that clash. Not only do you have that clash, you have the clash between player and fan. Because, and when I say fan, I mean those who attend the games. Because, I mean, you can look at any game. You can look at, you know, NBA, NFL. A significant portion of the people who attend the games are Caucasian, are white folks. And so you have, there. you know, there's a conversation to be had about that as well. But today we're going to focus on uh, HBCUs and what is happening in terms of the NFL draft. Quite honestly, anytime you have a conversation you know, about historically black colleges and universities, to me, uh, what happens in terms of athletics is secondary, even though I understand that uh, in many ways, athletics uh, can be a huge draw in terms of, you know, uh, bringing, you know, in terms of promoting the school, in terms of enrollment. At the same time, the reality is this, is that if you don't have a school, then you can't have a program. And so I've seen, and I could just say, very specifically, you know, I being here in Augusta, Georgia and being very familiar uh, with paying college and just some and not only just paying college, but a lot of the sports programs, knowing, you know, uh, someone like a coach, Ronnie Spry, Ronnie O. Spry, shout out to Coach Spry, you know, who has been uh, so influential, not just to, uh, like I said, to men's basketball at that uh, institution, but really just in terms of the uh, overall community. I saw paying college, you know. And its efforts to try to field a football team. And you have to understand that when you're doing these things, uh, it's it's very challenging. It's, you know, it's, it's very intricate. And not only do you need the right people in place, but you need to have the right uh, financial backing and, and, you know, and make sure your base is strong. And I'm saying all of that because I do, I can't give, you know, specific examples. I do want to make this a conversation about HBCUs in general and the reality that HBCUs are struggling as a whole. I'm not just talking about, you know, individual schools like your Howards, like your Florida A&M's, places like that. I'm talking about historically black colleges and universities as a whole and understanding the reality of what it is that these schools need now in this moment. In short, what these schools need is to be made whole. I'm sitting here, I'm looking at a report um, that the state of Tennessee could owe Tennessee State University a half billion dollars. Uh, Citing years of unpaid land grant matches by the state, a joint committee of the legislature discussed a half billion dollar sum owed to Tennessee State University. According to legislative financial uh, analysts, the state could owe, again, more than half a billion dollars to the HBCU. When the school was founded, the federal government put TSU, put both TSU and the University of Tennessee on a land grant program. Tennessee was supposed to match dollar for dollar money sent by the federal government to fund the schools. According to Representative Harold Love Jr., that funding should have been 75% for UT, being the University of Tennessee, and 25% for TSU, which, I mean, is an issue in and of itself. However, for decades, funding for DSU was in, for funding for TSU was inconsistent. Federal, state, or both never made it to the university. On this show, you hear me talk a lot about reparations, and you hear me talk a lot about, you know, making black folks whole financially. 
there is a school of thought. And I certainly appreciate this school of thought where if, you know, where we believe that America is a meritocracy, where we believe that if you work hard enough, good things will happen. And if you work hard enough, like certainly I'm not here to say that people shouldn't work hard. I'm here to definitely say that for generations we have worked hard and it seems like the harder black folks work, uh, the more that's put in place to oppress us, to hold us down. And so I understand that in addition to people working hard, in addition to personal responsibility, there also has to be a, a point where we say to the government, hey, enough is enough. Pay us what you owe. And I'm thinking about historically black colleges, universities, and I'm thinking about these young men and young women who are athletes who come to these schools, who uh, in some cases have to deal with, you know, second class facilities, who have to deal with, you know, just various types of adversity, who have to, because of the lack of funding in the schools, have to travel cost, uh, cross country, you know, to get beat up on, basically. Why? To raise money for the school. Money that. The that state governments already have that they should be paying these schools that they are not. And so what you have is that is that the differences between your PWIs, the difference between your power five schools and your HBCUs are ever present before you even step on the field. And so there's the I don't want to call it trickling down, but like I said, there are disparities and the disparities play out everywhere to include the opportunity to play professional football. Of course, we know COVID was a game changer. Uh, a number of the HBCUs decided to play spring football. And if I'm not mistaken, spring football was basically the kiss of death, you know, for a lot of these guys that were looking at getting drafted. The short answer to the issue of HBCUs, you know, and players not getting drafted in the NFL draft is a redistribution of wealth and a redistribution of talent. And we are starting to see some of that. You know, there was a, a really big push, you know, we're seeing some players, you know, who are, you know, in high school players who are stepping up and saying, well, I'm going to go to an HBCU for the culture. You know, we're seeing former, you know, athletes and former standout players, you know, who are now coaching at HBCUs. They're doing it for the culture. And my response to that is that it has to be bigger than the culture. And what I mean by that is, is that folks are saying they're doing it for the culture, but ultimately they're doing it for themselves. And HBCUs are so much bigger than self. Understand the purpose of historically black colleges and universities. The um, the idea. Well, two things. First is to provide educational opportunities for black people, if you want to say people of color, that's fine. But specifically for folks who otherwise would not be able to attend college because of finances, because of, you know, race based circumstances, however you want to put it. That's what HBCUs were founded for. I think with that, and this is something that I believe is missing in it with HBCUs as a whole, there's got to be some type of revolutionary element, not just in terms of what's taught at HBCUs, but how students conduct themselves after they leave schools. After the, after they leave the, these respective schools, are you going to be a revolutionary? Are you going to be someone who is going to stand for black people and for black liberation? Or are you going to be an agent of white supremacy? I know I talked around the question, but I really did just want to get some stuff off my chest in terms of HBCUs. I'll go back to the original question, um, which is and I know I didn't necessarily talk around. It. I spoke, you know, very pointedly to certain issues, but I will just I will review uh, the question in short with that question being, you know, no HBCU players were drafted in uh, in the NFL draft. Uh, first of all, I think it's a mistake on the part of NFL teams uh, for not taking a serious look at these schools. You look at someone like Darius Leonard at South Carolina State University, who, if I'm not mistaken, two years ago um, was the uh, selected as the rookie. I want to say defensive player of the year, um, but obviously someone who you know had high marks and played excellently 
uh, for the Indianapolis Colts. In all honesty, it's NFL teams' losses if they don't want to go to historically black colleges and universities and institutions and see some of the talent, you know, that's present there. Not only that, but at some point there has to be an element of, I'm not going to say self-sufficiency, but I think just of presentation in terms of uh, historically black colleges and universities. And I think this is where, again, you can bring the classics back. You know, you can have a classic, you can have a series that is strictly dedicated to, you know, NFL draft, you know, to NFL draft highlights, to promoting players ahead of the NFL draft. But ultimately, as previously stated, and this happens so much uh, in sports, the accountability piece is really is really on the owners. Like, what are the owners going to start doing to have to have a paradigm shift, you know, when it comes to these race based issues in sports? Because we'll always come to these, you know, points of contention for why. Why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? And I think a lot of it, we put the onus on the players and it's unfair to the players because the owners have so much more money than the players and so much more power than the players in these types of situations. Thank you, James, for that question. Uh, We're getting ready to go to break. You are definitely going to want to come back for this second question. Oh my goodness. I'm looking forward to this one and (laughs) it's going to be done. That's all I can say about that, yo. You're listening to making a difference. This is Donald Doe and Mike Hill Doe with Family Financial Consultants. Do you need help with Medicare, with affordable mortgage and life insurance, building an estate for your child? We provide these types of services for you and much more. As independent insurance brokers, we take pride in coming into people's homes and not only saving them money, but changing their lives. Imagine only paying a few dollars for your medicine instead of hundreds or cutting the cost of your insurance premiums. Our goal is to provide affordable policies tailored to your individual needs. Give us a call at 803-293-8915 or 706-503-3933. Family Financial Consultants, LLC, located at 412 Edgefield Road in North Augusta, South Carolina. Agents work for companies, but a broker works for you. Welcome back to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Kim Macon. You're listening to Request Line. I'm loving this. Uh, like I said, I know that you guys now are going to send in a bunch of questions and, you know, this is going to be something that's just going to be self-sustaining in a way that I think is really going to help what we're doing here at making a difference. And I think it's very interactive, you know, in that way. And I know people really love, I don't want to say it's custom. It's, it's kind of a customer service piece, but really just want to be a part of the experience. And I think this is a, a way to really help people become a part of that, making a difference experience. By the way, if you want to send in questions, you can do so at making a difference show M A K I N a difference show at gmail.com. Again, that's making a different show at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on Facebook. It's facebook.com backslash making a difference show. Look, I'm tripping. I'm thinking it may be facebook.com backslash making a difference. Um, nevertheless, send your questions in uh, either way. Um, your question may be selected uh, for a future episode of making a difference and for the request line series. Second questions from my man, Al Hayes. Al is a man of many names. Uh, in this case, he, will, he is Al Hayes. Al Hay says, how do we stop with the aggression that black men and women have toward each other? Again, how do we stop with the aggression that black men and black women have toward each other? I want to shout out my brother, James. Love my brother, man. He is a visionary. He's uh, insightful. Uh, like I said, and at some point, man, I got to have him on the show. He's going he's gonna to be like rugged and raw with it. You know, we're going to like, we really need to sit down and do a show together, man, because James isn't going to pull any punches. I think y'all are really going to like that. And it's going to be a, a welcome exchange and a welcome change i think just in terms of the the style of of commentary and you'll see once we get that together shout out my brother james and of course shout out al for this question 
At any rate, James and I were talking kind of in this vein yesterday. And I'll, I won't so much explain what James and I were talking about. Um, but I do just want to deal with this question specifically. Uh, when you say aggression between black men and black women, I think this is strictly a social media dynamic. And I'll explain why I say that. That's not to say that black men and black women don't have issues outside of social media. You know, clearly we have issues and challenges in the real world. But I do want to say this as a benchmark and as a standard that exists between black men and black women, because no matter what you hear about how we don't get along, no matter what you hear about, you know, uh, interracial dating and interracial marriages and all of these different, you know, this the angst that you may see on a ma in magazines that you've seen historically and culturally in a lot of ways. Bottom line is this 80 percent of the time, black man and black woman is going to get married statistically that's how it goes three out of four four out of five that's what it's going to be so i want that to be a standard and an understanding going in because a lot of you know i think what we're seeing on social media is definitely warping the perceptive the per, the perception of what's happening in relationships and that's happening for a lot of different reasons many of which i'm going to explain during the course of this commentary and to to answer the question in short uh, how do we deal with the aggression? It's not so much an issue of aggression. It's an issue of mutual respect. And culturally, I think many of us have been conditioned to look at the opposite sex as uh, in a in a sexual manner or in a manner of which we want you know to conquer. And I'm saying that for men and for women. There's no allyship. There's no togetherness. There's no brotherhood and sisterhood in that way. And so there are instances where we don't see each other as, you know, as individuals, as beings to be cherished, as, you know, beings to be protected. It's, I need something from you. And if I don't get it, I'm mad. That happens in dating. That happens in day-to-day -day interactions. That happens in marriages. And it's, and basically what we're getting to is, it's just, it's, it's about power. And it's not about sharing power. It's about wanting power for oneself. And so that's where the nature of the aggression comes from. In my experience anyway, and it's important that I say my experience because there's another thing that happens on social media is that honestly, I think in a lot of cases, particularly in marriages, people really just need to go to counseling. They need to go to a third party entity that can speak to a couple or to a, to a union from an unbiased perspective. We don't get that. What you end up getting is, is that people go to social media to uh, to detox, to relax, to find some solace. And what you end up doing in terms of relationship advice and perspective is that you're basically feeding out of a trough because you're not dealing with professionals, you know, um, ca you know, counselors and professionals. You're dealing with everyone who's taking all of the toxicity and all the negativity that's happened to them in relationships. And they're just dumping this, they're dumping it into this trough. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way that is so damaging. And again, it's so toxic to relationships between black men and black women. I seem to remember a conversation some, seems like look, 10 years from now or 10 years ago, you know, just because of COVID, man, like everything, time's kind of just all over the place, isn't it? I won't, I'll say about a year or so ago, uh, folks had rediscovered a conversation or a dialogue. Uh, between Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin. And actually that dialogue is almost two hours long, but folks had come across about a minute and a half snippet 
um, of their conversation, and I want to share it here. Um, and for some of you all, you will remember uh, this uh, brief dialogue. Is all I can, all I know that works in the world is a relationship. Yes, all right. Okay, that that's all that's going to work. It takes two people to have a relationship. Yeah, but but it, but the relationship. If you don't have a dream, fake it. But the relationship, you can't fake a dream. You got to fake it, because we don't have dreams these days. How the hell can you have a dream? For what? Well, it isn't. So, so everybody's everybody's jiving, but let's jive on that level. If I love you, I can't lie to you. Of course you can lie to me, and you will. If you love me and you're going off with Maddie someplace, you're lying to me. Because what the hell do I care about the truth? I care if you're there. What Billy Holiday say, hush now, don't explain. All right, I accept that. Of course, All of right, course you lie to me, because I don't even want to care. What, what does the truth matter? And why are you going to be truthful with me when you lie to everybody else? You lied when you smiled at that cracker down the job, right? Lie to me, smile. Treat me the same way you would treat him. I can't treat you, you the must. way I treat him. You must. Because I've caught, the, I've caught the frowns and the anger. He's happy with you. Of course he doesn't know you're unhappy. You grin at him all day long. You come home and I catch hell. Because I love you, I get least of you. I get, I get the very minimum. And I'm saying, you know, fake it with me. Is that too much of the black woman to ask of the black man? For 10 years, so that we can get a child on his feet that says, yeah, father smiled at mother. I'll put the rest of that conversation in the show notes. All right. <laughs> Look, that was said as only Nikki Giovanni, you know, could say it. And it just brings up a lot of compelling points and understandable angst from the pers perspective of the black woman. And without having listened to the rest of that interview, and at some point I'm going to have to sit down and listen to it because it, it seems rich and seems very insightful. You know, when you talk about, you know, hey, you treat me differently at work, you know, than you do at home. I think that just it really just brings home a, a concern that I have in terms of family, in terms of relationships is that a lot of us work so much that we lose sight of, you know, of, of our families. And I say this to people a lot. I understand that you have to work and I understand that some people have to work a lot, but at the end of the day, you got to sit back and take a step back and ask yourself, what am I working for? Or most more specifically, who am I working for? If you're saying, hey, I'm working for my kids, I'm working to make a better life for my kids. A part of your kids having a better life is mom and dad or a parent being in their life or in their lives. And if you're not there, why aren't you there? And a lot of this isn't just about individuals. It's systemic. And that's why I've become decidedly anti-capitalist, because I understand that a part of capitalism is to turn a person into a number is to turn a person into a dollar is to turn a person into an object, something that can be commodified and therefore taken advantage of. And these objects, these people who are taken advantage of are human beings. And so when you treat a human being in this way, you're not just disrespecting one person, you're disrespecting that person's entire family. And I think, and I think this is the nature of, of what's going on right now. We're literally seeing this happen. When you have, you know, a South Carolina governor, you have a Henry McMaster who says, you know what, we're cutting off, you know, unemployment uh, benefits uh, because of the pandemic effective June 30th, because, you know, there are enough jobs, people aren't taking them. Well, the reason why the people aren't taking the jobs is because the wages are trash. Who in the world, who in their right mind will go to work 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 hours and 
<laughs> or sit at home and make basically the same amount of money or sit at home and make more money. That's not an indictment of the individual. That's an indictment of the system. But before I trail off too much, the question is about um, eliminating the aggression between black men and black women. Uh, I'll say that while I understand the the word aggression and while and I think it's not so much aggression, I think angst is a better word. And the solution for angst in terms of black men and black women is a spirit of mutual respect. And you have to look at black people as and and, and, I, and I say black people, I'm saying, look, some of us are married. I'm going to get to get to that very specifically. But in terms of when I have a conversation with a black woman, I'm looking at that black woman as not someone to conquer, it's not someone to have sex with, it's not someone to take advantage of. I'm looking at a black woman, a black, you know, maybe a black coworker, maybe, you know, my mom, maybe I'm looking at as that person as someone to protect. And so there has to be a, a culture and a spirit of protection that we got to get back to. But when we talk about intimate relationships and understand intimate relationships are not for everybody. Intimate relationships are for, <laughs> look, limited and specific people. And so we have to be open and honest about communicating in those ways, in those intimate relationships. And when we do, again, we can't go into those relationships with a spirit of want to conquer or power or want to overpower or take advantage of. There's got to be a mutual respect there. There's got to be a commonality. There's got to be a goal. I know in my experience and just with what I do with podcasting and, and just like I said, my relationship with black folks is, is that that's simple for me because I want liberation for black people. I'm a married man. So in terms of, you know, just like uh, intimate relationships in that way, it's very simplified because I devote that energy to my wife. But I'll just say this in short. Stop with the cap on social media. Stop with the fighting on social media because what happens on social media versus what's happening in real time are two totally different things. And a lot, and those of us who are in relationships who have, you know, ex, you know, experience, you know, different, varying relationships know that what people talk about on social media and what people talk about or what people are doing in the real world are two totally different things. And it's about being honest with yourself. If you're a person who wants to date, okay, be a dater. But let the people that you are associating yourself with know that up front. If you're a person who wants a monogamous relationship, understand that you have to be open and honest with people in that way as well. Like these things have to be communicated. And I think there's so much pressure. Um, and, I, and I do think that this generation is getting away from a lot of that pressure um, in terms of just traditions and, you know, and what a couple should look like. And when you have kids and all these different types of things, like this generation is figuring things out on their own and that's fine. But ultimately, whatever relationship that you're in and whatever, you, you know, dynamic that you engage in, understand that without mutual relationship and communication like that. That union is going to fail, period, that, you know, if, if you're dating someone, if you're in a serious relationship, if you're married to somebody like without mutual respect and communication, like it's forget about it, man. And that is something that even those of us who've been married for a while, as a matter of fact, <laughs> look, not this Sunday, but next Sunday will actually be my sixth wedding anniversary. And so these are things that you can't just not only build to, you have to sustain over a period of time. And if you don't, again, you'll start to see cracks and failures in your own relationship. Said a bunch. Um, hope you guys enjoyed it. That was the request line. Thank you, Al, for that question. Again, if you got questions, you can send them in. Uh, making M-A-K-I-N a different show at gmail.com. You can also check out the Facebook page. It's facebook.com backslash making a difference. I lied. It's facebook.com backslash making a difference show. <laughs> Y'all forgive me, man. Um, like I said, I hope you guys enjoyed the format. There is a lot more to come. I got, look, I got a lot to say, man, about a lot of different things and it's coming. 
Stay tuned. Be patient. Love you guys as always. Can't make it with making a difference. Peace and God bless. The revolution will not be televised. You see, a lot of times people see, 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 see battles and skirmishes on TV and they say, aha, the revolution is being televised. Nah, the results of the revolution are being televised. The first revolution is when you change your mind about how you look at things and see that there might be another way to look at it that you have not been shown. What you see later on is the results of that, but the revolution, that change that takes place will not be televised.